0: Nine, twelve. Instead of body. But we can
1: discuss that later. For <laughs> service yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. We're ready for Honky Ward. That's good, we're finally home. Coming to you direct from our super secret studio.
0: Hello, this is Washington for beautiful people on deep state radio. We're broadcasting from the West Coast and it's raining again. I just want to say that every time except for once that we've done this podcast it has rained in LA, which is unheard of. And when it rains in LA, that means that's all we talk about in LA, but that's beside the point. Um, I am so beyond excited, excited, thrilled to be joined today by one of my favorite people. I call her my tweeple because I met her on Twitter. She's uh, an attorney, former FBI special agent, senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, former associate dean at Yale Law School, and as many, many, many of you know. Um, a legal and national security analyst for CNN. And as even many more of you know, she's a star on Twitter, and I call her my snark sister or my sisterhood of snark, Asha Rangappa. Hey, Asha.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, my gosh. Did you like your bio? Did it sound, like, very impressive and cool? I guess so. I do don't know.
1: Me,
0: do you want me to add <laughs> anything else? Like...
1: Tap dancer extraordinaire. Well, we'll rem- that remains to be seen when we get to that part of the program.
0: Okay, well, just I, it out
1: there. Yeah, and you know, as you know, I I literally pulled out my tap shoes from my high school dance bag, Betty School School of Dance, uh, Betty Smith School of Dance. I'm sorry, and oh, cool. um, yeah, under my leg warmers and ripped sweatshirt. Uh, And I realized that my toe taps are not on, um, though I have them. So um, I'm duct taping them on my shoes as we speak. That sounds very official. Are your taps,
0: mine are character shoes that are that light brown that no one should ever wear, that have been taps, had the taps have been put on. Are yours the light brown ones, like the little camel colors?
1: Mine are black.
0: Yours are much cooler.
1: Yeah, but yours are very a chorus line. Mine
0: are now I feel like I need to sing. God, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. How many people? I'm sorry. A little, little singing break. That was one of my first. How many boys?
1: Songs. How many girls? Oh, Asha, this is why I love you. Look <laughs> at all the, people. the chorus line. I was in a chorus line my Shh. freshman year in college in my first semester. Who were you in chorus line? I was the dance instructor, Larry, who they made Lori. Shut up. No. So, you know, like in the first scene yeah. when it's like five, six, seven, six eight. eight. Yeah. You were Larry Laurie? I was Larry Laurie. Yes. That's a good part. It is a good part. I didn't have really any lines to memorize except five, six, seven, eight. But you kind of get to be a little bit of a dick in it, which is kind of always fun. Totally. I was a total snob dancer. Who else did you get? That judged people. So it really wasn't much of a stretch.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, I would love, that's like the best kind of part. Either the villain or someone who just gets to be bitchy and judgy.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, who else were you, what else did you do in college? So in college, um, in terms of actual book shows that you would have heard of, um, Chorus Line, I did, um, oh my God, uh, Music Man. They're redoing. I kept thinking Shapoopy. I was like, Shapoopy, Shapoopy, Shapoopy. But no, uh, I was in The Music Man. I was also a dancer in that. Um, And then I was in The Triangle Club, which I don't know if you've ever heard of. Um, It is Princeton's longest running, you know, musical theater group. And it's all student written musicals. that's fun. Yeah. So it's kind of, if you've heard of Hasty Pudding at Harvard. It's like that, except we had women, and um, Brooke Shields was in it. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald was in it. Uh, Name so, drop. Uh, what's that?
0: Name drop a little. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Hi, Name dropping a little. F. Scott.
1: Um, Dean Dean Kane, is that the guy who played yeah, Superman? Yeah, Superman. Yeah, so he Dane was Dean in- Kane. Mm hmm.
0: I think he dated Brooke Shields at one point, or I could be making that up.
1: I think he did. They were um they were either in the same class or because there's there's many pictures in the triangle archives of them together. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I was in a couple of shows with Wentworth Miller, who oh, from, my, from Prison Break. Prison Break. Yes. Was he lovely? He, he was hilarious. Um, I mean, speaking of being snarky and judging people, we would, you know, sometimes behind the scenes, like just hang out when we weren't going on yet and just you know, snark about various things. And we called it Caddy Corner.
0: Oh my God. I would have loved to have joined the Caddy Corner. yeah, we we're like, let's go Caddy Corner. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I'm trying to think now of the shows that I did. We did were you in a theater? were you a theater minor or were you a theater major?
1: Neither. I majored in international public policy at the Woodrow Wilson School.
0: So, were you? You were just a theater nerd, like on
1: the side. I was just a theater nerd on the side. You're kind of like now.
0: You're kind of lucky though, because if you were a theater major, you'd do a lot of shows that are so inappropriate for any college student to do that you shouldn't be doing. And you do like, did you do like scene study classes still, just for fun, or no? No no, so I
1: I took no theater classes.
0: So you never had to do like Blanche when you're 19 and try to feel like you're going to be the best Blanche ever. And you're like, I, I don't know how to do this. this
1: no. And in fact, you know, when I when I first went in, um, I mean, I had basically danced through, you know, middle school and high school. And I just thought it would be fun when I saw the auditions for a chorus line. I was like, oh, that's that has dancing in it. Like, I'll try out. And I got the <laughs> That's part. the ultimate dancing part. <laughs> exactly. Of course, has a little dancing in it. Just a little. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, of course, once you do one show, you get sucked in. Oh. But I always thought of Holy. myself as a dancer. Um, and then only as I continued to stay with it, I, you know, I got small acting parts. Then I got larger acting parts. And then by the end, I was singing. So... Um, Sucks you in.
0: What's that? Totally sucks you in. It's like a
1: gateway drug. You do it one play. A drug. And then, yeah. And then by law school, I, I uh, joined an acapella group, Habeas Chorus. Um,
0: the names <laughs> that acapella groups and improv groups have <laughs> delight me to no end. That's yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah, it was Habeas Chorus. And then we would sometimes do joint uh, concerts with Harvard Law School's Scales of Justice. Oh, that's horrible. I love it. Yeah. It's horrible.
0: <laughs> horrible. We were, our improv group was, it was in hindsight. I was in one in college, it was called the Cactables because two of the guys who decided to give it a name got drunk on a drink called a cactus ball. Like, yeah, I think it was like a cactus ball or something stupid. And so that's why we we're the Cactables. And like for a year, they were like, let's just make a, a really cool reason. I'm like, being drunk is not a great reason for a name. And then, I'm trying to think, we, oh, Madding Crowd, which was kind of fun, far from the Madding Crowd, but
1: nothing as good as Habeas. What is it? Habeas Chorus? That's genius. Habeas Chorus. And then I also, because I was, you know, this person who didn't actually, when I was in law school, you know, you know law school is very dry. Um, and so I started to get really anxious and I needed a creative outlet. So I started a theater troupe at Yale Law School, which was called The Court Jesters. And Amazing. we did Shakespeare and then it went on to do like other legally themed plays. <laughs> Which Shakespeare did you do? We we did the Merchant of Venice. It's a good one. Yeah. And then uh, I think the following year, so I did it my third year and then I graduated, but I think after that, uh, they did a few good men. Oh. Very on the nose. Very on the nose. And then they did a man for all seasons at one point. Um, So, yeah.
0: Are they still doing the, is the troop still going?
1: It's not, you know, it kind of died out because, you know, law students in the last decade or so just became so super neurotic that they don't see the value in doing something that isn't going to give them a professional return. That's my conclusion.
0: I have a question for you. So, Do you find because you've done improv now too, right? Yeah, I have a theory because people always ask me about the CIA, they're like, What skill helped you the most? And I always say, for bar none for anything, it's always improv. I think everybody should take an improv class, I think that or a public speaking, but I always say improv because if you can think quickly on your feet, be spontaneous, and kind of get out of yourself, it's the best skill you can do, and also gives you that whole like, yes, and like. Any challenge somebody gives you, just go, yes, and, and then you can do it. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, I'm like, do you agree? And hopefully your answer is yes,
1: but. No, I I completely agree. I mean, I think that it was probably less directly applicable in the FBI, except for the few times that I did some light undercover operations, um, but I completely, you know, because because you just have to go with it. And I think that's what you were doing as a full time part of your job. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually think for the legal profession, it's a great skill. And you actually see many bar associations offer improv really? classes as a part of their continuing legal education. Yeah, like they will so get three CLE credits because of exactly what you said to, you know, if you are, especially if you're a litigator, uh, to be able to respond in the moment. um, It's actually very good at developing your listening skills and to not self-edit how you are, you know, because that was the first thing that I became conscious of when I started doing improv. I was terrified, by the way, because I had That's- done... I'd done theater, but it was all scripted. I was like, I'm really happy to just know what I need to say. Uh, And, you know, when I first started, I would have an impulse to say something. And I would have, I would, like, literally have this voice in my head that would stop me and say, no, that's stupid. Or that's not funny. And you have to get past that.
0: It's so... I. I always say people always ask me about improv and then, and then the CIA. And I always say improv is much scarier than anything you'll do in the CIA because it's literally you alone. And you know, you're going out there and you know, you have nothing to rely on, but your brain. And sometimes at least when you're working partners and you're partners, which uh, it's all listening because it's, you know, you hear people say, Oh, it's it's acting's reacting, but it really is as cheesy as it sounds. And if you can listen, I also think that's why women are better at it than a lot of men, because I think we're just better listeners Just generally speaking, I think that's what we do really well. Um, That's why I always think that we're better in intelligence as well, because I think we're just better at listening and picking up on those cues. But I think if you can do that, you can pretty much do anything. Because if you yeah. can get up on stage and you can literally that voice in your head is so loud because it's so common because I'm like, oh, that's not funny. Or you try to almost think of something that will be funny to say as opposed to like getting rid of all that bullshit in your head and just being there. Yep. When You can do that. That's sort of like that's where like the magic happens. And then when you see like good improv, you're like, oh, yeah, that that's what that is.
1: Yeah. And, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like at one point when I was doing improv in terms of its relationship to the FBI, I felt that it was most like learning to shoot a gun because, you know, in firearms training, what they teach you is that you keep your eye on the front sight and, you know, and you have to just kind of push the trigger Um, or press the trigger. They would never let us say pull. You have to press the trigger and just kind of you are trusting the bullet to go where it needs to go. And the people who were trying to really control it were the ones who would just shoot all over the place. Um, So it's got that similar zen quality in improv where you have to just be in the moment, trust your instincts, you know, and trust that, you have to let go of the outcome in a way, and and let it happen, and that's when you're going to do your best. And it's
0: hard because people, I think, who especially were in the CIA and FBI, we're not people who just go with it. We're like very Type A. We like to have a little bit of control or a lot of control, and we're we want to know exactly where things go. And so the idea of kind of relinquishing that um, is foreign. It's bizarre and it's very it's unnerving because you want to be able to say it, X is going to happen and this is going to happen. And it's almost becomes this mathematical thing that you can't control. But I was gonna ask you, why can't you say, why do you have to say push instead of pull? Press instead of, why do you say press? What was, what's the difference? I'm just curious, like what? Uh,
1: Because uh, pulling kind of, I I think they didn't want you to, um, and, and pulling, I think, made it more likely that you would anticipate the oh. discharge. Hey, nice. speak. And so, also,
0: was that which, the first you, time you would, you
1: would just sorry. slow? Like, the first thing that they would do um, in, in FBI firearms training is that, you know, they'd put you in your stance and they'd come, and you'd hold the gun up, and then the instructor would come and put his finger on your finger and, like, literally, like, press the trigger with you um, because they were they were so you know they they micromanaged exactly how you you fired your weapon that's um, smart you to start with that yeah and if you were a tabula rasa if you came into the bureau having never shot a gun they loved it because then they could mold you to the way that they wanted the, the guys who came in or men and women who came in from former law enforcement and military who kind of had other habits that they had to unlearn often end up ended up having a more difficult time
0: had you shot a gun before it was this Was this like a new Uncharted Waters for you?
1: It was pretty much new Uncharted Waters. I had gone to the firing range uh, with the ATF when I spent a summer working at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore in law school. And, you know, we fired— I can't remember. I mean, revolvers, handguns, there was like an AK-47. We fired all kinds of weapons and they were, you know, uh, completely new to me, but they, you know, they weren't training you in this uh, systematic way. Apart from that, I had not regularly, I had not shot a gun.
0: Was it a weird feeling for you? I remember going, my dad took me to the range a long time ago. He's which is bizarre. My dad's like this, like very nice Jewish doctor. And like, he like collected guns for a long time. And I was thinking he had like a small arsenal. I'm like, do you have a militia that you're helping out with? But so he took me and I just remember the first time thinking, this is a very bizarre out of body experience that I was having. And I felt, I don't know, for me, I felt like the power in my hands and I, it it felt very odd to me, but then I was like, okay, I, I understand why people get into it as
1: well hmm I don't know. I was freezing is all I remember when I was learning <laughs> because it was it was Quantico in December. Oh Jesus. And yeah and you know you obviously can't wear gloves or anything and so uh, my hands were freezing. We, I was freezing um, and then they would make you I don't know if you had to refill your magazines but those get really yeah. hard to do um, you know particularly when you're like fingers are freezing and um yeah. So uh, th- th- those are my associations and the, the smell of, uh, yeah. the, the, after Gun you powder. fire gunpowder. Yeah.
0: Oh, is, is it gunpowder? Is, is that the right? I don't know if that's okay. the right. I just said that cause it sounded like what I've heard, but I could be totally wrong. I, I'm like, I talk theater stuff. When I say gunpowder, I'm like, Ooh, did I hear that in a movie? But right. <laughs> that's right. I'm like, did I watch a law and order? And was, that was, that was in it. Uh, Demerska Hartke say that, um, I was going to, because I was, just a little bit, because we're talking about FBI and gun stuff, and and gun stuff, you can tell I'm a theater major. So we're right. talking gun stuff, you know. Um, talk a little bit about how you went from, you know, you had an interest in dance and all this stuff to, hey, I'm going to join the FBI, because in reading and doing a little research, because that's what I do, I liked reading your story. I mean, I knew a lot of it already because we knew each other before, obviously. But for me, I loved that you were a trailblazer in so many different ways. And so I just wanted you just to kind of touch upon your journey in and what that meant and how you got there, if you don't mind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I went to law school wanting to be a federal prosecutor and that was my goal. That's what I was interested in. I was pretty, Sure that that was what I was going to end up doing, Um, and that was why I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, the first summer in law school in Baltimore and went to the, you know, firing range with ATF and all of that stuff. Um, And so, you know, it was probably the second or my second or third year of law school that I realized that you don't just graduate from law school and go to a U.S. Attorney's office. (laughs) Even from Yale yes. Law School, which is a very good law school, um, I know, hear you, it's pretty good. I don't know. <laughs> rumor has it it's decent. Yeah, you know they teach you a little something. Um, but also, college. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the 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 typical trajectory is that you graduate from law school. You may you might clerk for a judge, and then you go work for a law firm for several years, and then you apply to a U.S. Attorney's office, and by the end of my second summer, where I had worked for two law firms, I knew that I just couldn't do that. I mean, I, you know, all the power to the people who go down that road, but it was just mind bogglingly boring for me. And I felt like that is just not something, and they pay you a lot of money, by the way. So, but I just felt like that's not something I could do. And so, you know, that summer, the same summer that I went shooting with the ATF, we had gone to the FBI Academy in Quantico and we'd taken a tour and I had hey, met. Uh, I met FBI agents for the first time. I had never met an FBI agent before. And I learned during that tour for the first time that under J. Edgar Hoover, agents were always lawyers or accountants. And that made sense when I thought about it because, you know, they typically did complex federal, yeah. you know, financial investigations. And so that idea had been in the back of my mind. And so sometime in the third year of law school, I thought, well, wait, I could apply to the FBI and I will kick down doors and it'll be kind of like the order part of law and order and I'll just do it backwards. So I'll do that and then I'll apply I'll do order and law. I'll do order and law. And um you know, and that's clearly relevant experience to the US Attorney's Office because US attorneys work directly with FBI agents in creating their cases. And so this was my brilliant idea. And so I applied. Um. It turns out, this was 1999, that the FBI was on a hiring freeze at that time. Um, They weren't really hiring agents, and you could wait for five or six years before getting in, even if you met all the qualifications. So I went through a few of the initial phases, and then my application just kind of languished there for a little while. So I went on with my life. I graduated from law school. I went to Puerto Rico, where I clerked for uh, a federal judge, a First Circuit you- judge.
0: I was going to say, but, if you're going to clerk, Puerto Rico is a nice
1: place to clerk at least. Well, that was my thinking. I was like, look, I mean, I've been in <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut, and I was like, dude, I'm going somewhere warm. So I basically applied to clerkships in warm places. That was my strategy. And Hawaii, it worked out. Puerto Rico? <laughs> I did. No, no, no. You don't understand. I applied to Hawaii. I applied to the Virgin Islands. Um, uh-huh. I, I did not apply to Guam. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I was. Did you think about it, though? I did, like, I a little did bit? think about it. I did yeah. think about it. Um, and so. At the end of my clerkship, nine eleven happened. Like literally, like three weeks before I was supposed to uh, finish my clerkship, and I was actually in Boston because the First Circuit was sitting in Boston when the planes hit. And you know, one of them had taken off from Boston. From World Boston, Airport. yeah. So we were evacuated and and all of that Ugh. from the federal building. But it was not long after that that. The FBI called and they said, are you still interested in becoming an agent? And it turned out I was in their system as a foreign language speaker. And if you remember, after 9-11, all of the intelligence agencies, particularly the FBI, is like, hey, maybe we need people who speak foreign languages. This you might- know
0: what? It's not a good idea. Maybe we need people who actually speak a different language. So-
1: right. Right. Because they had like this backlog of like, you know, tapes or whatever that they had been sitting on. And they kind of realized it. And frankly, at that point, they were like, we don't care what you speak. It could be like pig Latin Come on in, you know? So, um, so I said, yes. and so That's were- how I
0: got into the CIA was my pig Latin skills, by the way. <laughs> I'm fluent. They tested me. I was like a four or five. I was amazing.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know so they and, and they were very aggressively hiring then. I mean Congress gave them money to hire thousands of new agents. So, you know, in in about 9 or 10 months, I mean it took my background check took a while cuz I had done a lot of travel um, but uh, that's how I ended up in the bureau. And How you long know,
0: Was it from when they started? I'm just curious, compared to CIA, like how long did it take you from the start to the finish? Like when they said, okay, are you still interested to, hey, welcome to Quantico?
1: Um, Let's see. So I got a call from them, uh, I think in September, like, or even October of of 2001. Um, And then by the following August, I think, they had accepted me. And then it was That's just a matter bad. of waiting for a slot at Quantico. So, you know, they, they were hiring so fast that, and they were just pushing people through every two weeks at Quantico that I just, you know, it was it was a matter of when they had a space to to put me into the training. Were you
0: the diversity in your training? Like how, just like when I joined my class, it was a lot of, it was very white male. And mm-hmm. I remember people saying I was the diversity. I'm like, I'm... I'm a woman and I'm like a Jewish woman, but if you're counting that as diversity, it's a little sad. And I'm always, and now they're getting much better. They realize that they're the power and the absolute need, and it's not an option. You need that kind of diversity. I was curious what it was like for you joining back then you had to have been this unique unicorn in a sea of like a lot of white
1: males (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh you know and by the way a little note I did also apply to the CIA did you Uh, I did and I got like and I got like this little tiny note that had no return address that was like we have received your application and we will notify you if we're interested and then I never heard from them again it is the
0: it is a manila envelope with no return address. Cause I remember the first time I was like, what is this? Why is somebody like cranking me with no return address? And then I was like, oh, okay, that's what that is.
1: Yeah, I was surprised that they didn't like cut out letters from a newspaper and <laughs> to
0: make it look like a, like ransom, a note. ransom
1: note. <laughs> like, you
0: need to arrive to Langley. And I was like, Oh, look, they cut it out of an Us Weekly. That's
1: fun. Yeah. Um, you know, my when I finally reported to the New York field office, my my training agent, and then who became my partner, was uh, Indian, um, and Indian American, and he had been in the bureau for five or six years, and he had literally been tracking all of the Indians in the entire bureau. <laughs> okay, and so he <laughs> informed me that I was the first Indian female special agent. Are you kidding me? I don't think I, this is like official anywhere. So I'm like literally going off what my Indian partner said. We're gonna count
0: it. It's official. <laughs> it's official now.
1: So huh. I mean, to answer your question, uh, yeah, I, I you know that I just don't think that that was they. I don't. I mean, I think I'm sure that they had been mindful of it, but they weren't like they didn't. I don't think they understood how important it was to the mission of what they needed to do. Um, And my my class had I think 40 people, 40 new agent trainees, nets, and I think seven of us were women. Um, of the women, one of them was African American. There was me, um, and I think. That was it. There was one African American. There were two African American men um, in in the class. So yeah, it's largely white male, and that's you know that is what it is now. I mean, it's eighty percent male, I believe, and eighty three percent white, or or those stats are flipped. I'm not sure which one's eighty, which one's eighty three percent, but it's largely a white male organization. Um, In fact, I was just in touch with uh, one of my former colleagues and she's going to she's thinking of retiring and she's African-American. And she said, you know, honestly, one of my considerations about I feel bad leaving because there are so few African-American women in the bureau. She said it's less than one percent.
0: That's so sad. It is so incredibly sad to me. I don't. I don't blame her. I, I'm sure she feels a responsibility, and she wants to be able to sort of, I'm sure, shepherd and to be there and to role model for young agents coming up. Yeah. Ugh, I, I don't understand. I'm hoping. Like, I know with with the agency, they're doing a much better job, and the top three leaders at the agency right now are, are female, which I think is amazing. And that is great. And it's to me, it's very heartening, and I mm-hmm. hope. I, you know, I was, I hope, fingers, toes crossed, that that sort of diversity rolls into everything else is, because it's more of a 50-50 split there. I didn't realize it was like an 80, sort of eighty eighty twenty 20 split over at the FBI. For some reason, I thought it was a little bit, there's a little bit so more that's, parity. And,
1: and and that's specifically, just to clarify for listeners, just agents. that's for- Agents, right? Yeah. So if you look oh, okay. at analysts and support staff and all oh, of that, you know, it probably that the statistics are higher. But I'm talking about special agents, the people who are carrying guns and conducting investigations, which you know, you know that still matters. And um, you know, I'm curious whether what you heard from the CIA, like, what was there internal pushback about the leadership becoming female? Because I, I actually won. I don't know how the FBI, the rank and file. I mean, I think conceptually they are in favor you know they would be in favor of a woman being the director of the FBI I think if and when it happens it'll be an adjustment
0: um it's interesting first I should walk back because I'm sure in ops and like for case officers ops officers I'm sure it is more male I was thinking as a whole in just the the agency population you know I, because I don't know, you know, I, I'm assuming that there was a lot of support. I know under Brennan, just from all my friends who were there, he was so pushing of inclusivity and for really, he was a champion for diversity and he was, it was such a big deal for him. And it was, I loved hearing those stories and he really he'd really shepherded along and it was so important that I think people were like, you better get on board or else because it's going to happen. So it just became sort of matter of fact. I don't know how it was under Pompeo. I'm sure not great. Um, And I'm sure now it's better under Haspel, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I should ask some friends. I was curious. I was going to ask you a few friends who are thinking about leaving or retiring because of Trump or if they're just keeping their head down, because I think it's such a difficult time when I'm talking to some of my friends, it's so disparaging. And I have a friend who's been there for three decades who's thinking about leaving. And I can't imagine. I'm like, you're so close to retiring. And he's like, yeah, but it's it's impossible. And I have other friends in the federal government that that are so just you know, they're, they're out of their mind. They're said, you know, how, how do we do this? You know, some people are like, we're just going to keep our heads down. We're just going to do the work. You won't be here forever. We believe in it. But I, I just think it would be so hard, especially now under the attack that the intel community is going under to do your job and to feel good about your job and to feel like what you're doing matters. And if you're trying to protect sources and methods, which is the most important thing, that they're actually going to stay safe and protected under this administration.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because there's such a difference between the FBI and CIA when it comes to the relationship with the president. Right. I mean, for the CIA, they are collecting intelligence with the president as their ultimate consumer. Yes. And they are also implementing the president's policies um, in terms of executing um operations or or collection taskings based on based on policy objectives. And it's interesting because I think with the FBI and with the Department of Justice in general, there's a little bit more distance, right? Because yeah. there, you know, you are doing investigations based on the US code, based on criminal laws that are passed or monitoring foreign intelligence activity. It's not so dependent on, you know, it it doesn't change so much Administration to administration, I mean, priorities might change. Like we're going to prioritize drugs over whatever, or not emphasize civil rights. I mean, that's not great, and I think that has caused some demoralization. But <clears throat> just in terms of the day-to-day, uh, I don't think FBI agents really think of themselves as working for the president. Okay. okay. Um. In in kind of what they do, they are looking to seek justice you know, or stop threats to the country. And there's, there is that distance. And I think that they have, it's, it's a, it's a good thing. Cause I think it can insulate from some of the direct attacks. Yeah, um, it's maybe so in a toxic. way that's probably harder at the CIA, I would think.
0: It's pretty, t- I mean, it is, it's such a toxic environment. And I, I think you're right, because I think there's more of a black and whiteness when you're, when your job is law enforcement and a right and a wrongness that you can't really, well, you can't argue with him. If you're the president, but, um, you can argue with it a lot, but realistically that's what it is. And I think there's so much gray and murky within the agency. And ultimately, yeah, when you have your ultimate consumer is, doesn't care, or you question where his loyalties are, I think it that's where the challenge lies. and I I can't imagine what that challenge is. did you when you were in the FBI, did you always do counterintelligence or was that something you wanted to do or how did they decide what you're going to do at the FBI? like what would they say, okay, Asha, this is this is where we feel like you have your skill set or is it just sort of happenstance? and they put no, you where the I needs so, are
1: you know, I went in in two thousand two and remember Mueller had just been, appointed uh i'm kissing know. my hand
0: to the heavens every time you say his name
1: muller yes Mueller. <laughs> <He's> so <laughs> not so non- no nonsense uh he actually okay. gave me my credentials at the fbi academy and you know you know that from my twitter banner photo which oh I, my god i love that photo I, um but his his speech to our graduating class was basically you know, if you don't like this job, you can get out because there are 60,000 people ready to take your place. And we were like, and that was like his inspirational speech. So we were like, hey, <laughs> got
0: it. okay." <laughs> like, it's so suck it.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, he came into the bureau a month before 9-11. And after 9-11, the FBI was raked over the coals. I mean, as was the CIA. But you know, with the FBI, there was talk about, you know, should we actually split up the FBI and separate out its counterintelligence mission from uh, its, you know, or or its national security stuff from the other side? They're not capable of collecting intelligence. It has, a, you know, they only think about criminal investigations. So they were under a lot of pressure. And it it's really a credit to Robert Mueller that he was able uh-huh. to- <laughs> I know. But- the, the the cloud split and, and sun comes down. Um, but he shepherded the agency through that. And a part of that was basically sending the message kind of in the same way that he did to our graduating class that things are going to change. And one of those things is that we are prioritizing intelligence and counterintelligence. Um, and so that became a priority. So even though my concept of going into the FBI I was kicking down doors when I got in, um, you know, and I reported to New York. I I actually reported originally on the first day to the background check squad. So this is typically new agents when they come to New York they do a year of, like, rotations between different squads to get experience. And so you first start at doing background checks, and that lets you go and interview people and get um, experience doing that. And then you might do surveillance for, you know, a few months and all this stuff. But I showed up the first day, and the supervisor said, actually, the SAC of the counterintelligence division wants to see you. Um, Special agent in charge is basically, like, the head of... The
0: office. So I was like like the COS for the agency, like chief of station.
1: Yes. And I was like shitting in my pants. Like I was like, what did I do? Like, did, did I, I do something wrong? Did, how I, did I fuck like, up so quickly? I, like, exactly. Like, why would Anti, you know, go to, you know, his front office, his very large office. And basically, I mean he said to me, Look, you know, you have certain skills that I cannot waste for a year uh with you doing, you know, rotations in in something else, like you need to go directly to this particular squad. And so he sent me and, you know, that's where I met my my partner. Um, So I was doing that from day one. And, uh, and I got thrown into a lot of, you know, really interesting cases. And it was really, I mean, it was a side of the FBI that I just didn't know about before. And so all of these things that we talk about today um, and that have entered kind of regular uh, mainstream conversation was just not known to the public then, really. I mean, apart from lawyers, things like FISA's and national security letters. and
0: which everybody gets wrong. I love that you always correct
1: people. You know, that kind of thing. Recruiting, you know, turning people, double agents, all of those things in the terminology that you just don't see on the criminal side. So
0: and I said it it also gets really muddy I think with CIA like people always confuse what the two different agencies do and so I it's it's nice now I think because of well, it's not nice because it's all like a big shit show, but being able to differentiate <laughs> it and also like it's not nice. Let me just preface. This. It's not nice at all. But to be able to really highlight the good work that they're that the FBI is doing and how they're doing it and to clarify why they're doing it and what goes into it, I think is really important for the American public to be able to see it and to appreciate what goes into, you know, the intelligence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what goes into
0: protecting national security. security. hmm. Although let me repeat, not a good thing that's happening, but it's that. a teaching moment. It's, it's a teaching a, moment. Oh, it's a teachable moment. I love that. It Did is, What uh, is the biggest misconception that people ask or people always ask you about with the FBI? Because I get so many random questions. I'm just curious, like what people ask you.
1: Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. I, I am suddenly blanking. Well, people, I'm not say- doing a good improv.
0: No, it's uh. okay. Um, I'll, well, what, ask- is, what is no, what they like the CIA? Oh, of course, how many people I've killed. Not, yeah, I was that's what
1: I was gonna say, which is a, such a dumb thing to ask. No, people. I can mean, I see them asking the CIA, but like, <laughs> did you ever shoot anybody? You know, they didn't ask me if I killed anybody, but they're like, did you ever shoot anybody? And I'm like, no, it's actually pretty rare to it's- shoot somebody in the FBI. Um, you're like,
0: it's not a good thing, and then they look probably really disappointed, like, really, you didn't oh. like, on the
1: Americans. You
0: know, know. It's like. well, it's, well, what I always like is that people don't ask, like, did you kill somebody? But it immediately, so how many? I'm like, let me see. I carry the one, add two. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? How many? A, none. And then they look like crestfallen. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I know. There's the so disappointed.
1: Well, yeah. And I, I guess I would say, you know, I, I don't know if I get asked, um, a, a typical question but I, I will say that people are often really surprised by certain things like you know if i am giving some story about when i f- was flying armed and they're like he flew armed and i was like all the time like when you're an fbi agent you're you're actually required to fire with your fire or to fly with your firearm especially after 911 i mean they basically oh. said out there like if if we if there is an incident where there is an fbi agent on a plane who does not have their firearm uh to respond to a situation, like this will not go well for you. Uh so um <laughs> like so unpacking. Yeah, exactly. So you like uh, you know, you were I it's so funny that time was such a interesting time um to be in the bureau because it was just a time of changing priorities and kind of what they were just they wanted to be ultra prepared for the next thing um, because they did not want a repeat of what happened. And just in all of these different ways, like, you know, yeah, you always made sure that you had your your firearm because you were... And it was kind of a pain in the ass, especially as a woman, because you look like How a frump. I was going to say, like, what do you heavy. wear? Oh, my God. I look... It was, like, the freaking 80s. Like, I had these, like, big jackets that I would wear. Uh. Uh, no, we it talking, was like so... the
0: shoulder padded like jackets, just so it kind of covers it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you couldn't wear like cute things. So you're, um, like, yeah. So it was like total. You know, or if I was dressed casually, it would be like big sweatshirt or something. Um, and uh, oh, and, and my my favorite one of my favorite stories of of flying armed and and being dressed casually. So <clears throat> when you when you are flying armed. You have to fill out this whole thing. So you can't like just bypass checking in. You always have to check in um, because you have to fill out all these forms. And then you have you bypass security. If you notice the next time you go to an airport when actually people are working there, (laughs) um, there's there's a a police in uh, 2020. yeah. There's a law enforcement officer who's kind of sitting to the side, like where people are usually walking out of uh, coming from inside the terminal out. Yeah. There's somebody there. So you can go over there. And what they do is they check your credentials and they do they basically do a double vet of the fact that you're carrying a firearm onto an airplane. And so I was in JFK and I went and there's a New York uh, NYPD guy and he's checking my creds and he's chatting it up with me. And I was just dressed in, you know, like a, a long button down shirt that covered my gun and jeans and tennis shoes. He was totally nice. And then as I was walking away, he looks at me and he says, by the way, good disguise.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so I was like, I, I, I said, thank you. And I, I mean, I didn't even know what to, like, I didn't know. Does he think like, did he think it was like the movie soul man where I was like, really, you know, a white person, (laughs) a white man underneath. Exactly. I mean, I don't know what was going on or if it was, what did he not like my outfit? And he's commenting on that. But, and I, he, I don't think he was trying to like, it was, it was like really like a thumbs up. Like we're both in on this. And I, like, I don't that's know.
0: what it was. Like, it's sort of like the, it's, and then that's probably what he thought. It was, like, Sky, like, good disguise. She's going to rip off her face later. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> so cool. And you're like, okay. Oh, hey. yes. I always, yeah. when people say that, I always pretend like I'm going to rip off my face. Like, they're like, are you wearing a disguise now? I'm like, yes. Right this minute, I'm wearing a disguise. <laughs> this is not me. Yes, I just wear it all the time just for shits and giggles. It's how I pick up boys. It's, that's amazing. Good disguise. What did he just like did he give you a little wink and a little thumbs up?
1: Kind of. Like I think he might have even been flirting with me. Like I don't know what he meant. And so my I mean, my motto in life when people say things which my students tell me are considered now microaggressions. They're like they're like Professor Rangapa, that was a microaggression. Um, because I love telling that story because it's just so stupid. Um and I'm like, you know, I have just learned that I just say thank you. Like when I meet people and they are like, uh, and and this happens to me not infrequently when they say, you know, you speak wonderful English. Oh. And I've just learned to say thank you. Because, I, you know, what do you do with that? Like, what are you going to say? And I mean, I, I every time I get something along those lines, I, I oh. think that they legitimately believe that they are giving me a compliment.
0: Do you know what I love is when people insult me, like... Um someone said, you know, like you have that Jewy look, no offense. They throw in no offense at the end of something really insulting because that's going to make it non-insulting. Right. So no offense. I was like, okay, that sounds cool. I'll totally accept that. No offense. I I don't know what to do with that. I don't think I could be as gracious as thank you. I would probably be as gracious as what the fuck did you just say to me? Or I would then like, literally go full like Jerry Springer and like throw my purse to the ground. And then yeah, people would like hold me back and be like, and another thing.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think I think it comes from growing up in I grew up in Southern Virginia and Hampton Roads. I was the only Indian person in school the entire time I was in school. I, I my sister is four and a half years older than me. So we just never overlapped. And so um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all white. Like, I mean, the schools I went to were, you know, roughly 50 50 black and white. So they weren't, you know, homogenous, but I was just the only Indian person. And to make things worse, by the way, you know, uh, Southeastern Virginia has a lot of Native American history. Um, oh, God. So it, I can't you know, imagine. So I went to Captain John Smith Elementary School, you know, who ultimately, like, marries whatever, uh, someone be. Somebody from Pocahontas' tribe, right? Or, um, or did he marry Pocahontas? I should know I this. think
0: so. I have just around the riverbed now in my head. Yes. I want to start singing it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll sing that while you're telling the story. Exactly. Let's sing the Colors the of River the Wind Bend? together. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so when people, when I was growing up, um, you know, in elementary school, these are children, right? So they're, they're asking this very innocently. They, they ask, you know, what are you? And what they're asking is, are you black or white? And I would say, well, I'm Indian. And then they would, you know, get kind of this very fascinated look on their face. And I mean, I got all kinds of responses, like how, you know, like they would make the house, like they thought they were like saluting me or something, or they would ask me if I lived in a teepee, or they would ask me what tribe I was from. And it was incredibly confusing, which is also why I hate Christopher Columbus, because he started this whole freaking nonsense um, by getting lost. So um but you know, he was a guy you know,
0: and he wouldn't ask for directions. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, you know, I feel like it's become so much like ingrained in me that I to to get questions like this that I um it, it's just kind of a auto response to just be gracious about it. You're actually, I kind you're of have a default, I, I think unconscious assumption that people they just, they're they're just ignorant, like they don't know. Um and that's just I don't
0: know. There's going to be tapping after I say this, but visit DeepStateRadioNetwork.com and you can support all of our work by becoming a member. If you're a member, you reserve, receive early access to all the podcasts and one-on-one you things or interviews, discounts on Deep State Radio Swag, which is super, super cool radio swag. And you get the daily newsletter. And Valentine's Day is coming up. And what better gift to give to your sweetheart than the gift of the Deep State? And you can give them a Deep State membership. You can also follow Deep State uh, Radio on Twitter, on Facebook. You can can also follow asha on twitter and you can follow me on twitter as well and we'll be tweeting out all this stuff asha how's the duct tape coming
1: when i got my shoes out of my dance bag i did not have i think i mentioned this at the beginning i did not have my toe taps on so in true macgyver fashion i got out my duct tape and i i taped them on so the the sound may be a little bit sketchy i'm now
0: putting Look, if anyone's up... judging our tap sound then we've got bigger problems okay. i'm getting you on dancing with the stars this is my new goal for 2019
1: i mean first of all have they ever had an indian woman on dancing with the stars it doesn't matter. They've never had you on Dancing with the
0: Stars. There we go. Ooh, that was good. And then... Yeah. And truth be told, I was such a bad dancer that when I was in my dance recital, I asked my mom, I was like, was I the worst dancer there? And she said, honey, you weren't the worst, but you were the second to worst. And there was... A picture of all the girls in a straight line doing a kick, and I'm literally dead set in the middle, just twirling by myself doing my own pirouette. I have no idea what I was doing. So, the fact I can do this, I'm really excited. I'm so excited yeah, I got to the, tap with was, you. That was
1: basically my daughter at her recitals. So, I
0: <laughs> put her in Taekwondo. <laughs> that's amazing. It's beautiful, and I don't want to keep you because I know you have to go. I'm but so I...
1: sorry. I, oh, no, um,
0: it's beautiful. We I'm glad we got to end with the tapping. I am too. And I just want to say thank you so much. And I already did the goodbye, but everybody just check out Asha on Twitter. And we're going to be doing a podcast, God willing, hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, Asha Molly Jongfast, who's amazing on Twitter, she's hilarious and lovely and wonderful. And I will be doing live commentary of the State of the Union as long as the State of the Union happens. And if it doesn't, we'll be pissed and we'll try to figure out something else we can do instead. But hopefully it'll happen. You can see us all um, again. So thank you so much, Asha. I love you. Thank you. you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.
1: Thanks, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation
0: with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.